Hello again and welcome back to the Starting Strength channel. This will be our fourth episode of the podcast and we hope to differentiate a little bit of, of uh, today from uh, the ramblings of our previous monologues and get into a, a little more structured reading today. Maybe this will be a little bit less boring for you. What I'm going to do is uh, read to you from the first chapter of the third edition of Practical Programming for Strength Training. That book will now be in its third edition. We are hoping to have it out for Christmas, and we're furiously working on uh, several changes that will justify calling it a, a true third edition. We are going to rewrite the book from top to bottom. I will be assisted by Andy Baker of Kingwood Strength and Conditioning, our resident programming expert, going to have Andy add a bunch of specific programming to this book. Previously, practical programming for strength training was uh, conceived primarily as a diagrammatic outline of the principles of program design. And people being people would like to have a little bit more spoon feeding take place. So what we're going to do this time is instead of just a few cursory outlines uh, that I have scribbled together. We're going to have Andy put together some rather extensive programming examples for all three levels of uh, programming advancement, novice, intermediate, and advanced. And uh, hopefully the third edition will provide you some more concrete uh, things to copy your training after, give you some more uh, real-world experience, and certainly a different perspective than just mine. So that book should be ready for sale oh, probably the end of November. We'd like to have it ready for Christmas, for the Christmas market. So today, what I'm going to do is give you a little introduction to that book and a little taste of the different approach we're going to take by uh, reading to you uh, a piece of the opening chapter that might provide a little glimpse into what the new book will all be about. The topic of this book is training, not exercise, and in particular, strength training. Successful athletes in all sports must train, and training for distance running is certainly approached with the same philosophy we employ to get strong. Start where the athlete is today and plan for improvement from there. We utilize primarily anaerobic assistance exercises, resistance exercises. They utilize primarily aerobic endurance exercises, but training means the same thing for both of us. We don't wander into the weight room and play with the barbells any more than they wander onto the track and skip around till they get bored. Training means planning, and planning requires an understanding of what we're going to attempt to change about the athlete's physical capacity. Strength training is a program that increases the athlete's ability to produce muscular force against an external resistance. It properly follows a logical progression, starting from the athlete's current strength level and moving in the direction of increased strength. Such a progression requires that two things happen. First, a correct assessment of the athlete's current strength level is necessary if we are to make plans to increase it from there. This assessment can and properly should occur during the coaching of the lifts the athlete will be using in the program since the lifts must be correctly instructed and perfected anyway. As the lifts are learned, weight can be added since we must learn to lift heavier weights if we are to get stronger. Dedicating a separate assessment event at the inception of the program is wasteful of time and, more importantly, 
fails to recognize that the testing event itself constitutes a stress that causes adaptation. If the test is sufficiently intense to accurately assess current physical capacity, the resultant adaptation to the stress of the test changes the capacity of the test subject, thus rendering the data inaccurate for any time point subsequent to the test. It is much more efficient to use the first instruction day for the lifts to both teach the material and assess the capacity of the trainee. Since the program starts at this point and goes up from there for virtually all novice trainees, the second workout will build on the now known stopping point of the first workout and the purposes of both instruction and assessment will have been served. Second, a program must be constructed that most efficiently serves the purpose of creating a strength increase for the athlete. As we shall see, this entails the application of some basic training principles that are derived from the concept of stress recovery adaptation and a correct assessment of where the athlete is with respect to his potential for physical adaptation. Stress is any event that produces a change in the physiological state of the organism. Stress can be a hard workout, a sunburn, a bear mauling, or three months of bed rest. Stress disrupts homeostasis, the normal physiological environment that exists within the organism. Recovery from the stress event is the organism's way of perpetuating its survival. By returning to its pre-stress condition, plus a little bit more, if it can, a suntan is easy, bears can be a problem, just in case the stress happens again. This adaptation to the stress is the organism's way of surviving in an environment that subjects organisms to a variety of changing conditions. Indeed, the ability to adapt to stress is one of the hallmarks of life. The stress in our scenario is produced by the careful use of a barbell, which can create the conditions under which the adaptation is increased is an increased ability to produce force with our muscles. But like any other organism subjected to repeated stress, the prior stresses produce an accumulation of adaptations that fundamentally change the organism. You are obviously not the same creature now that you were when you were born, and this is the result of both normal growth and the stresses to which you have been subjected during that time. In our training scenario, this physical stress history has a bearing on what type of stress we can continue to apply, because your current state of adaptation constitutes a portion of your ultimate potential to adapt to stress. Each individual has a limit to his ability to adapt to stress, both acute stress in an immediate sense and chronic stress over the course of time. This limit is determined by genetic endowment as well as the physical circumstances in which the athlete exists and ultimately controls the potential of the individual for athletic performance. In fact, all human potential is limited by processes that function this way, and that is why exceptional people in every field of endeavor are not the norm. These concepts are summarized in Figure 1.1. The extent of individuals' approach to this limit determine determines how much potential improvement remains to be developed. An untrained 17-year-old kid and an advanced 38-year-old competitive lifter are on both ends of a spectrum of the exploitation of physical potential. The kid has not developed any of his potential strength, and the advanced lifter is already very strong, having devoted 20 years to trying to get that way. The kid has essentially all of his potential in front of him. 
while the lifter has developed essentially all of his potential to the best of his ability. The kid gets quite uh, gets stronger quite easily and quite quickly, while the already strong lifter works a mesocycle for months at a time to develop just a tiny bit more strength since he's already very strong. It's easier to get stronger if you're not already very strong. In fact, the kid gets stronger every workout than the advanced lifter does every six months. Depending on your perspective, this is either tragic or marvelous. The spectrum of human performance is an example of the principle of diminishing returns, commonly observable in countless examples from nature and human experience, approaching the speed of light, learning to play the piano, and building a faster car of examples that, of things that start off easy and eventually become so difficult and expensive in terms of energy, time, or money that approaching their limit is essentially impossible. And were it not the case that human performance displays this same progression, easy at first, difficult at last, no one would ever have put 200 pounds on his squat in a year, which happens all the time, and world records would always be broken at every competition. And as blatantly obvious as this is, the norm in exercise programming is to ignore it. We are taught to test a novice for his one rep maximum capacity on the various exercises to be used, none of which he really knows how to do, none of which he can do correctly, and therefore none of which he can perform well enough that a test for maximum effort would actually mean anything. Then, bad data in hand, the fitness professional gives him a program that is more suitable for our advanced lifter, a program that has our novice working at sub-maximal loads most of the time and adding weight on a predetermined, sometimes monthly schedule. This, instead of a schedule that accurately reflects his actual capacity for rapid adaptation, given that he hasn't ever rapidly adapted before and is therefore capable of doing so. Worse even than this, progress over time, over time may not be addressed in any meaningful way at all. If the topic is addressed, the advice is to wait until the weight you're lifting for 8 to 12 reps and 4 to 5 sets gets easy and then go up a little bit. No attempt is made to actually drive progress, but if it happens to occur, that's probably okay as long as you don't hurt yourself. And this is the norm the conventional wisdom of exercise prescription. Some version of it is accepted as correct and proper by all the certifying bodies that deal with exercise prescription. The ACSM, NSCA, IDEA, ACE, AFA, NIDA, ASFA, the YMCA, Cooper Clinic, because it's evidence-based, meaning that's what the peer-reviewed exercise science literature says you should do. But... Exercise is not training. So our approach to the planning of uh, making people stronger is markedly different from that of the organizations primarily concerned with preparing personal trainers and exercise class instructors. Our approach to training takes into consideration the fact that every individual trainee must be programmed with respect to where they are along the curves illustrated in figure 1-1. In this book, the terms novice, intermediate, and advanced describe the trainee with respect to the time it takes for recovery from a homeostatic disruption induced by training. These terms are not used to describe a trainee's strength 
or absolute athletic ability. These terms may, in fact, be applied differently to athletes in different sports, but our use of the term here is specific to the model illustrated in Figure 1-1. Because a novice has never trained with weights before, in a way programmed to produce a regular incremental strength increase, he lifts weights that are light relative to his genetic potential for strength and power development. This may be the case despite the fact that he's at a gym membership for years, attending faithfully every week but failing to train. Essentially, the novice can recover from a single training session in a period of 24 to 72 hours. He can train heavy on Monday and be ready to go heavy again on Wednesday. These trainees are quite far away from their genetic potential and therefore lack the strength and the neural efficiency to generate a stress heavy enough to impede rapid recovery. For them, heavy is not really heavy. At the same time that strength and power are improving, recovering ability is improving too. Recovery processes are just as trainable as any other physical parameter And this is an extremely significant factor in training progress. But it is important to remember that recovery processes can always be exceeded by an inappropriate and excessive application of training stress. Recovery must occur before progress can be made. Simply put, a novice, as we use the term here, is a trainee for whom the stress applied during a single workout and the recovery from that single stress is sufficient to cause an adaptation by the next workout. The end of the novice phase is marked by a performance plateau, typically occurring sometime between the third and ninth month of training, with variations due to individual differences in genetic endowment and the correct management of the environmental factors that that affect recovery. Programming for the novice is essentially the linear progression model that is defined specifically for weight training in our book, Starting Strength Basic Barbell Training 3rd Edition. It is important to understand that the novice is adapted to inactivity as it relates to weight training and therefore can make progress even with training programs that are not specific to the task of increasing strength on the basic barbell exercises. For example, doing sets of 20 reps would also increase a novice's absolute strength for a one rep max. A previously sedentary beginner can make improvements in his one rep max squat by riding a bike. This would not be the case with intermediate or advanced trainees, where progress in strength, power, or mass is absolutely linked to the appropriate application of specific training programs. Novices accomplish two things with every workout. They test their strength with a new, higher workload, and the test loads the body to become stronger for the next workout. The act of moving 10 more pounds for the prescribed sets and reps both confirms that the previous workout was a success at improving the novice's strength and causes his body to adapt and become stronger for the next workout. For the vast majority of lifters, this novice phase, when properly managed, will see the most rapid and productive gains in strength of an entire career under the bar. The novice phase draws to a close when the easy gains have been made and it becomes increasingly difficult to continue making progress from one workout to the next. 
Smaller jumps in weight will have been utilized and exhausted, and progress stalls despite every effort at managing recovery. The intermediate lifter has a different set of problems to solve. As the intermediate lifter begins to handle training loads closer to his physical potential, his recovery ability is affected differently by the stress. Recovery requires a longer period of time, a period that normally encompasses the time during which multiple workouts will occur. From a practical standpoint, this time frame is most efficiently managed using a weekly schedule. Essentially, the intermediate lifter has developed the ability to apply a stress to the system that requires a longer period of time for recovery, while at the same time, the stress required for a disruption of homeostasis has begun to exceed the capacity for recovery within that period of time it previously took, 48 to 72 hours, to allow for both sufficient stress and sufficient recovery then. The training load must be varied over a longer period of time, and the week makes a convenient period in which to organize training. The actual time required may be shorter than a week at first, maybe five days, and may grow to eight to nine days towards the end of the intermediate stages of training. The critical factor is the distribution of the increased workload, which allows enough stress to be applied in a pattern that facilitates recovery. The key to successful training in this stage of development is to balance these two important and opposing phenomena, the increased need for stress and the corresponding requisite increase in recovery time. The simple weekly organization of training loads facilitates recovery following one or more heavier training bouts within a single period of loading, and it works well within the social framework of the calendar. Intermediate trainees benefit from exposure to more exercises than novices. These athletes are developing their, new, their skills with new movement patterns, and as this happens, they are developing their ability to acquire new skills. It is during this period of time that trainees actually become athletes, choosing a sport and making decisions that affect the rest of their competitive careers. These decisions are more effectively made if they are based on a broad exposure to a wide variety of training and competition options. The end of the intermediate phase of training is marked by a performance plateau following a series of progressively more difficult weekly training organizations. This can occur in as little as two years or in as many as four, depending on individual tolerances and adherence to year-round progressive training. It is likely that 75% or more of all trainees will not require programming complexity beyond the intermediate level. Remember, the amount of weight lifted or years of training do not classify a trainee. Virtually all strength training for athletes not competing in the barbell sports can be accomplished with this model. These athletes will not exclusively train in the weight room. They will focus much of their training on their primary competitive sport. This effectively extends the duration of this stage of the trainee's development to the extent that even very accomplished athletes will probably never exhaust the benefits of intermediate-level strength programming. Advanced trainees in the barbell sports work relatively close to their physical potentials. This small subset of the training population is comprised almost exclusively of competitors in the sports of powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting, since this level of time and dedication cannot generally be demonstrated by casual trainees. The work tolerance of the advanced lifter is quite high, 
given that the ability of an athlete to recover from training is itself trainable. However, the training loads that the advanced athlete must handle in order to produce an adaptation are also quite high, since the adaptations that brought the athlete to the advanced stage have already occurred. This level of training volume and intensity is very taxing and requires longer periods of recovery than do intermediate training loads. Both the loading and the recovery parameters must be applied in more complex and variable ways over a longer period of time. When combined, the loading and recovery periods required for successful progress range in duration from a month to several months. For example, we may apply a single week of very heavy training to induce a homeostatic disruption. That week of training may require three or more weeks of work at lighter loadings for complete recovery and adaptation. The average slope of the improvement curve here is very shallow, as shown in figure 1-1, closely approaching maximum physical potential at a very slow rate and rather large amounts of training effort will be expended for rather small amounts of improvement. For this reason, too, the number of exercises advanced trainees use is typically lower than for intermediates. They do not require exposure to new movement patterns and stress types since they have already specialized and adapted to those that are specific to their particular sport. Complex manipulation of training parameters is appropriate for use with advanced lifters. The majority of trainees will never attain the level of development that makes advanced periodization necessary, since most trainees voluntarily terminate their competitive careers before the advanced stage is reached. An elite athlete is one who performs at an elite level by the standards of the sport in which he competes. By this definition, the elite designation could actually be applied to an intermediate lifter performing at the national or international level. There occasionally exist a few athletes so talented and genetically endowed that this situation occurs. And we have all seen freaks of this nature rise rapidly within a sport, seemingly without even paying the dues that most of his peers have paid. The elite athlete is usually in a special subset of the advanced category, Elite athletes are the genetically gifted few who also happen to be motivated to achieve success despite the enormous physical and social costs. They have stayed in their sport by virtue of their success and have dedicated themselves to training at this level because their training investment has been returned. An advanced lifter is one who has progressed beyond the intermediate as described by the model illustrated in figure 1-1. Previous training has brought the elite athlete very close to genetic potential. And additional progress requires much greater program complexity to scratch out any small improvements that might still be uh, unrealized. These athletes must be exposed to training programs that are very complex, highly variable in terms of stress, although probably simple in terms of exercise selection, forcing the already adapted athlete closer to the ultimate level of performance. At this point, the program may be considered in terms of several months, a year, or even Olympic quadrennium. Any approach to the training of an athlete of this caliber is a highly individualized matter and is beyond the scope of this book. Far fewer than a tenth of a percent of all athletes, regardless of training history, will ever reach this level. Unlike beginners or at intermediates, advanced and elite trainees need large amounts of intense work to disrupt homeostasis and force adaptation. 
This means that the stress required for progress will creep nearer and nearer to the maximum tolerable workload the body can produce and then recover from. An elite athlete who is doing 10 sets of squats and making progress may not make any progress with 9 sets and may overtrain by doing 11. The window for progress at this level is extremely small. But if workload is not increased, then neither performance nor comprehensive recovery processes will improve, since no disruption of homeostasis is forcing them to do so. The manner in which increases in training load are applied is determined by the level of training advancement, as illustrated in Figure 1.1. Again, the ability of a novice to adapt to training differs enough from that of the intermediate and advanced trainee that it is imperative that each level of training advancement be programmed according to the physiological parameters that characterize each stage of development. The most effective way to waste a lot of time in the weight room is to program a novice with an advanced lifter's routine. If this is so blatantly obvious, why did the certifying organizations not recognize this pattern and adjust their dogma accordingly? Could it be that the academic institutions in charge of the conventional wisdom about exercise have not studied this blatantly obvious pattern, and therefore it has not been published in the peer-reviewed journals that are the keepers of the conventional wisdom? Let's frame the question a bit a better way. Why do four-year colleges and universities, whose job it is to graduate students with bachelor's degrees and PE, and who at the same time must support a faculty of master's degree candidates and PhD professors, fail to study a phenomenon that necessarily takes place over a time frame of many years within a highly motivated group of competitive athletes that will not be accessible to the department for use as study subjects and who will not alter their training to suit the needs of a study that compares different training methods over time? The answer is obvious. They can't. Studies that might effectively investigate and compare actual training methods for athletes cannot be designed and conducted within the limitations of the university system of study. The department has access to undergraduate students to service test subjects, virtually all of whom would be considered novices and would show the novice effect in response to any training protocol. In other words, everything works more or less. They also have access to populations of elderly people who have time to be study subjects. They do not usually have access to competitive athletes who can alter their training for a study designed by someone unfamiliar with their sport and its training requirements. Semesters last about three months. Publication requirements are annual. Master's degree candidates are in the department for two to three years. They must publish to complete or publish at the whim of the chairman, whose job it is to appear productive to the administration. The people in charge of study design and methodology would necessarily have been personally exposed to properly designed training programs before they could possibly be equipped to ask the right questions. Such people are in very short supply within PE departments, as odd as that seems. People in PE departments are either trying to graduate, acquire tenure, teach fewer sections, publish as much as possible, or retire. This may seem to be a harsh assessment, and it doesn't mean that these people are evil, but the reality of the situation is that the vast majority of PE programs have no access to either the concept or the data of training and cannot prepare their people to deal with it.
The upshot of this is that there is a giant hole in the literature regarding training, and the hole is filled by peer-reviewed articles about exercise. This is due to the fact that exercise, by its very nature, is accessible to PE departments and training is not. With the current system in place, this situation will not change. With the peer-reviewed literature dominated by articles on exercise, forming an evidence-based practice, the term fashionably applied these days to exercise prescription based only on evidence from peer-reviewed exercise science literature, uh, devoted to the actual training of exercise, uh, of, a- of athletes, rather, is essentially impossible. Drawing conclusions about training for athletes based on a body of literature devoted to exercise for a few small subsets of the general public cannot be and has never been productive, and all the peer-reviewed publication worship in the universe will not make it so. Empiricism is a view of epistemology that holds that knowledge of a subject comes from direct sensory experience with it empirical evidence. Empirical evidence is regarded by some people as data resulting from controlled experimentation in a formal study environment. These people are typically those involved in generating this type of data, and they may regard the absence of an experimentally generated data set as an absence of knowledge. In contrast, Rationalism is a competing epistemology that holds reason and logical analysis as a sufficient test of knowledge and truth. An absence of experimental data is not an insurmountable obstacle to a person capable of applying a rational analysis to a problem, since specifics can be accurately deduced from general principles. The observations of experienced individuals, in this case experienced coaches, who have dealt with thousands of athletes over decades, are often regarded by academics in the exercise science publishing business as mere anecdotal reports, tantamount to hearsay and innuendo. This is a misunderstanding of the definition of the word empirical which most definitely includes the direct, informed observations of experienced coaches. Empirical evidence gathered from an experimental study is only one type of empirical evidence, and it is dependent on observation in precisely the same way an experienced coach gathers data through observation. It is therefore precisely as valuable, especially when you consider the fact that data from a study is only as good as the methods that generated it. Exercise science has its problems. The populations it studies are typically small, sometimes fewer than 20 people in the group. These people are very seldom trained athletes and are most usually untrained college-age kids for whom any stress is adaptive. This makes for a poor way to study the effects of two different exercise methods and completely precludes any questions regarding training. Often the methods themselves are poorly controlled, doing a squat study on a Smith machine, for instance completely omitting any quantification of the movement pattern being studied. Like precisely what is a squat? How deep is it? How is this measured? Or a failure on the part of the staff to standardize its interactions with the study population. Like try really, really, really hard this time, as opposed to what happened last time. Sometimes the study duration is too short to reveal anything meaningful about the question being investigated. 
So it's since we are dealing with students in the study population that will only be available for one semester. Most importantly, if the study is being directed by a person without the experience to know that the study question itself is stupid. Like, can more weight be bench-pressed lying on a bench or balanced on a Swiss ball? And if the review staff lacks the experience to know that the principal investigator is asking a stupid question, then stupid, peer-reviewed, evidence-based research enters the literature and adds to the problem. The observation that sets of five reps across from multiple sets is the most useful set-rep range for developing strength over a long career in the barbell sports is a conclusion based on the observed evidence, and it is just as immune from prior belief and experience bias as a controlled double-blind study. There may well be no such thing as a theory-neutral observation, but in the absence of other data, The informed observations of coaches are the best data we have, and conclusions drawn from them are far superior to extrapolations from very bad exercise studies. When a dearth of experimental data exists, as is the tragic situation regarding training methods beyond the scope of weight loss or thigh hypertrophy, the marriage of empiricism and rationalism yields the best result. In the absence of any meaningful experimental data generated by peer-reviewed studies regarding the long-term benefits of barbell training, we are forced to rely on the observations of hundreds of thousands of coaches and athletes who carefully picked their way through the mistakes made during the process of of acquiring experience. This makes a rationalist out of every effective barbell training programmer. This progress, if it is to be logical, effective, and production, that is rational, must be guided by a thorough grounding in the sciences of physiology, chemistry, and physics, since the exercise sciences have proven themselves to lack the rigor and scope necessary for the task. The well-prepared coach has either a hard science degree or an otherwise extensive background in biology, anatomy, physiology, physics, chemistry, and probably psychology as well. Textbooks on these subjects should form the basis of the coach's library with practical experience under the bar and many thousands of hours coaching on the platform, rounding out his abilities as a coach of barbell training. Well, that's our little excerpt from Practical Programming for Strength Training, 3rd edition. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope we've interested you in purchasing the book out before Christmas. And thank you once again for joining us on the Starting Strength channel. Bye.